Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Okay, well, let's get started. Um, uh, Welcome, everyone, to this new series of webinars that we're just starting with Lung Cancer Canada. It's called What's New in Lung Cancer. My name's Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist here in Ottawa and currently also serve as the president of Lung Cancer Canada. And the goal of these webinars, which we'll be doing about once a month or so, is to inform uh, people who sign in to listen uh, to the webinar, or indeed we're live on Facebook as well tonight, what's the latest uh, news, a bit of education about a specific aspect of lung cancer, um, and then there'll be an opportunity to ask a question. So this is our inaugural meeting. We've got another one scheduled in early December, uh, which is gonna be about ALK lung cancer. And for that, our guests will be Dr. Ross Kamage from uh, Colorado and Dr. Natasha Lale from Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto. Uh, you can see on the screen is myself and then uh, Christina Sitt, who is our programs manager at Lung Cancer Canada, and she will be uh, coordinating our question and answer session a bit later on. But I'm thrilled to in- invite in our inaugural What's New series uh, two of, uh, colleagues from around the world who really need no introduction. They are you know, extremely well-known and, and respected. So firstly, Dr. Um, Bob Miloski, is a chair of medicine in uh, Vancouver. She's the head of the lung cancer tumor group for British Columbia and the longstanding chair of the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference. And then Professor Tony Mark, who is a professor of clinical oncology at the Chinese University in Hong Kong. Um, and Professor Mark uh, trained in Canada and he has been um, really a lead researcher in EGFR lung cancer for many years and we'll tap into some of that knowledge soon. He collaborates with uh, researchers in China and Hong Kong and indeed around the world, and is a past president of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. So without further ado, welcome to both of you. And we're gonna get straight into this. And the way that we're gonna do it is I'm gonna ask questions of Professor Mark and Professor Dr. Miloski. Uh, and we'll kind of go back and forth. These are questions that I've come up with uh, in collaboration with my colleagues. And we've also already received a number of questions that from you, and we'll get to those um, somewhat through the uh, discussion and then at the end in our Q&A session. Um, if you do want to ask questions, there's a chat box or a Q&A section at the bottom of your screen. You can just click on that to put uh, your questions in. So the topic of today is EGFR uh, lung cancer, epidermal growth factor receptor lung cancer. And so the first question is, Prof- Professor Mark, could you tell us what exactly, what exactly is EGFR lung cancer and who gets it? 
All right, before that, call me Tony. Come on, let's do it the Canadian way. Okay, style, right? Don't call me Professor so and so. I mean, Paul. <laughs> All right. The way I always explain that to the patient is that it's just like your cell phone. In your cell phone, you need to receive signal from the surrounding st station before you can hear it. So the EGFR is actually a receptor receive signal of the cell. So all cells have to get the signal to grow, which is to receive the growth hormone receptor. So once you get receive the signal, then you've got a whole signaling pathway inside the cell that tells the cell to grow faster, grow bigger, and those kinds of stuff. So it is actually a receiving system. However, once it got mutated, the signal con become continuous. So instead of just grow when you only receive signal, it grow continuously. So as a result, it become a cancer cell. Okay. So I, I like that analogy. I've not heard that before with a, with a cell phone. <laughs> Can anybody get this? Is it um, who, what type of um, is it? Is it hereditary? Can you can you inherit it from your parents? So or is it who, right. who gets it? So first of all, this is a what we call a somatic mutation. So let me just clarify the term. It's a little bit complex term. There is so-called a germline mutation and a somatic mutation. Germline mutation is something that is inheritory that you can get, and then is those are the mutation that occur in all the cell in your whole body. So one mutation will go for the whole body. That's the germline mutation. But somatic mutation only happen in the cancer cell. So in a sense, it's, a, it's not a something, a mutation you can inherit it, you can pass on because it only happened inside the cancer cell. How did it happen? I don't have a ex good explanation. Now EGFR basically take place in many cells in the body, skin cell, hair, guts. And why would this, the, cell in the lung will get mutated. That actually is still a, a million dollar question. Why do we have it more common in Asia than the Caucasian population? That is still a mystery. We have already done what we call the whole genome sequencing, meaning that to study the entire genome of the hundreds of patients from Asia and United States, and we cannot find a solution uh, to answer this question. So we don't know, that's uh, to keep the answer simple, uh, but then it occur and then more frequently in the Asian population than the Caucasian population. Okay. And I guess one final question on this point, is EGFR lung cancer, so it's the somatic mutation, you can't pass it on or catch it from anyone, is it associated with cigarette smoking or tobacco right. exposure? So interestingly enough, this is one lung cancer that is not related to tobacco smoking. Our original observation is this, in the Caucasian population, the, num the percentage of non-smoking lung cancer is about 10%. Compared to the Asian population had always been 30%, and we cannot explain that. And now we know that the patient who are actually non-smoker with something what we call adenocarcinoma, the gland, the gland type of lung cancer, they are the one with the highest incident of having the uh, EGFM mutation. So therefore it is a mutation not directly related to tobacco exposure. Okay, great. Thank you. So I think that sets the scene. And now, so uh, we're on first name terms then. So Bob, um, first oh, question- you can call me Dr. Molosky. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Molosky mom. Um, uh, Maybe could you could you just walk us through a little bit of the history of EGFR yeah. lung cancer? Yeah. When when was it first discovered? And and you know that a little a little kind of sweep through time for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's such an interesting story. 
um, mostly because I, when I've lived through it, and I'm thinking back to the early sort of 2000s, so 20 years ago, and I remember uh, AstraZeneca giving us uh, Jafitnib just to try out, and we didn't know how it worked. We knew that it was an oral pill. We knew that when we were giving it to patients that some patients did incredibly well with it. And I remember even a patient waking up in the ICU, it was Gwen Bebs, but we didn't really know why it was working. And it wasn't even clear that it was like Tony said, the non-smokers. And in about 2004, two papers came out really about the same time. And both papers suggested that in 10 patients here and 10 patients there, if you had a mutation, these were the patients who were responding to Jafitnib. And I remember going into my mentor's office, Dr. Nevin Murray, and saying, gosh, now we'll know who to give it to and who not to. But we then argued as a thoracic community for about four or five years. You know, I think, um, you know, Francis Shepard, another mentor of mine, uh, as a Canadian, we all supported that maybe it was sort of um, the outside of the cell, what was called IHC. Fred Hirsch from Colorado was arguing that it was a number of number of sort of copy numbers, what's called fish test. And it really wasn't until Dr. Mock's sort of study came out called IPASS that, you know, the light bulb went on. It was really that simple that, you know, in a retrospective analysis, he showed that the people that were most responding to the Jafitnib were the people with mutation. And that changed our whole lung cancer world. It really did. And, you know, hats off uh, to you, Tony. That was really, you know, I think all of us, all of a sudden it was like, of course, like we all then accepted it as a community. There's no more fighting. Barbara, I always thought that when this story broke out, you were in high school. So now you tell me the truth. <laughs> well, I do think I am a bit younger than you, but I'm not sure how much. <laughs> Well, I might have been in high school. Um, so I was doing my residency when that paper that you mentioned by Dr. Lynch uh, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004, which, uh, and the New England Journal of Medicine uh, is maybe the, the premier medical journal in the world. And normally you have to have a big fancy study to go into the New England Journal. And Dr. Lynch published this paper with 10 patients. Um, uh, reporting that that if you if the EGFR mutation was found, as Dr. Mark, as Tony had described, that that signal that was continually switched on, um, if you had that mutation, then the Jafitinib worked, and then that led to well, I guess uh, maybe Tony, I'll come back to you because that led, I guess, to the IPASS study, which is the famous study that changed what we all do. That you were the you were the lead of. Um, maybe maybe um, you could tell us about how the story, kind of pick up the story from Bob about how sure. this drug, Jafitinib, became the EGFR drug of its time. Well, yeah, no problem. I think it's a, also a fascinating story. First of all, I was at the audience when the, Tom Lynch presented that in, the, I think, ESCO, that he was actually presented that. I was in the audience. I just say, wow, this is the jackpot. This is really going to change everything we do for lung cancer. And also about the same time, uh, the group from the uh, NCI had published a paper showed the incident to be extremely high in the Asian population, as well as Dr. Misutomi's group also demonstrated that in Japan, they had very high incidence. So it became very clear, this is going to be 
a disease that is more prevalent in the Asian population. So let's go back a little bit about the Drifitib story, like what Barbara had said. So at that time, uh, Drifitib was given to all lung cancer patients, and only retrospectively they find this mutation. But interestingly enough, at that time, because of the dramatic improvement, FDA had given a conditional approval to AstraZeneca to make the drug available to all lung cancer patients, despite our mutation status, because they didn't know about mutation status before. So the drug get a, a condition approval available in the United States, but they have to promise FDA to do three studies. One study uh, that, that is actually going to compare with the uh, uh, placebo in the third line. The second study is to compare with dorsidexel in the second line. And then the, and then the first study is to compare with doublet chemotherapy in the first line. And all three studies has to be unselected population. That was the original design of the free study. They promised it, uh, FDA. But turn out the study against placebo totally negative. So as a result, they have to withdraw gefitinib from United States. So they actually did not have gefitinib in United States for the next 10, 15 years. Originally, the iPostity in the uh, first line situation was supposed to be led by um, Ron Natale in UCRA and that I was supposed to be the Asia collaborator, quote, unquote. And so, but then they have to withdraw that I become the leader of the study. So I was handed this uh, protocol saying that first line comparison had uh, to have off selection party, uh, every patient can come in, and then the prime endpoint over survival. I look at that, I say, it's going to be a negative study because we already knew that actually EGFR is the driving force behind. If you include every patient and you have no control of who's coming in, then you really have no idea how the distribution is for the randomization. And also due to a crossover, over survival will never be a primary endpoint of choice. So have a lot of struggles. So we, we designed the whole study to enrich the study, you know, since it's going to be Asia, to enrich it to say non-smoker, adenocarcinoma. And so that will give us the highest incident of EGFR mutation. And then we insist to get the sample as much as we can. At that time, remember the good old day, getting sample for lung cancer study was very difficult. Yes, you guys, guys in high school, you don't remember. But those days, getting sample was not a routine. And then, but then we take a good effort. And also most important of all, change the prime endpoint to progression-free survival. Now, at that time, FDA would never except uh, progression-free survival as the primary endpoint. And for a very clear reason, they always want over-survival. But since FDA is not going to deal with it, we just need to deal with the Japanese and the Chinese authority. So we managed to change the primary endpoint to the progression-free survival. And Tony, just to clarify here, when you say unselected, that means anybody can go in. Anybody uh, can. And progression-free survival, for those who aren't familiar with the clinical trial terms, is the the time that you're on the treatment until it stops working, as opposed to overall survival, which is our life expectancy. Is that, yeah, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so yeah. back to you, so, so you've got the study going now. And then that's how we take up study in 2005. We managed to have um, China, Japan, and majority of Asia, we enrolled a total of 1,200 patients, and then uh, mostly concentrating retrospectively on the subgroup that we have sampled to look at the EGFM mutation status. And we find in the mutation post patient, 
the gefitinib is a lot better than the chemotherapy. And then on the other hand, the group that without the mutation, chemotherapy is a lot better than the gefitinib. So that is actually how we establish the concept of personalized medicine according to the genomic profile of the patient. Yeah. And for those of you um, listening in, um, you know, uh, for those of us who were watching uh, uh, Tony and, and leading this study, that this was like you, I think, just suggested that this was a sea change in maybe not even just lung cancer, but in a lot of oncology looked at this particular study and said, wow, you have a mutation and you can target it with a drug like Jafitinib. It's way, way better than chemotherapy. But if you don't have the target, there's no point in having that drug. It won't work. You've and so this, this whole concept of targeted therapy, personalized medicine, precision medicine, all stemmed a lot from this, uh, this study. And then I guess hot on the heels of that, Tony, there were then five or six studies which really showed the same thing as your IPAS study with other EGFR drugs. Um, maybe, Bob, we, I can come back to you. So what are the other EGFR drugs that that came along either alongside or shortly after gefitinib? Well, you know, I, I want to first off by saying, Paul, that BR21 was a Canadian trial, and we showed that there might be some activity of these TKIs, even if you didn't have mutation. It's certainly not as grand as if you have a mutation, but I'm still a strong believer in BR21. In fact, I saw a patient today who did not have an EGFR mutation and who's responding. And it's likely we missed the EGFR mutation because these are responding extremely well. But going back to your question, and uh, you know, everyone knows that I love choices and we've got choices these days. We have first generation EGFR TPIs, Jafitinib and Erlotinib. We have second generation EGFR TPIs, Afatinib and Dacamitinib. And we have third generation TKI called Ostromertinib and a lot of third generation TPIs that are up and coming. So the list continues to grow, our choices continue to grow. Um, and I, I like choices. I think that osteomertinib in the FLORA trial showed that it was superior to those first generation TKIs. I think afatinib is the choice for uncommon mutations. There's still part of the world that believes in this sort of idea of sequencing. And finally, you know, brain mass is a sort of a big topic. I think the largest amount of data is for, uh, for osteomertinib, but I've seen responses in brain with all of these agents. So I think um, I'm pro-choice and you know, <laughs> I think osteomertinib is probably the easiest drug, but um, I like to have conversations with patients and I like the patient to, to make that decision with me. So I'm going to pick up, Bob, on, a, on just two or three things that you mentioned there, and we can maybe just tease them out a little bit. So you, you mentioned this, uh, something called the FLORA study, and that osimertinib, maybe just you could just explain wh when did we, when was the FLORA study, when did that come out, and how has that changed things for, sure. for so some the people? Flora, the FLORA study, again, looking at first-line osimertinib versus most of the other patients for gefitinib, sort of two-thirds gefitinib, one-third erlotinib in the first line setting and the response rates were not that much different. In fact, they were about 80% in each of the two sort of groups, but the progression-free survival was 18.7 months in the osteomertinib trial versus about nine or 10 in the gefitinib, which is usually what we've been seeing. So clearly superior to those. And this came out a couple years ago and overall survival was positive as well. So 
and the brain meds were being controlled. And there's even a, a, you know, some of those brain meds had complete response. So I think it was a real, I think it was a really good trial. It really showed me that in any patient that you are thinking about using gefitinib because there's many patients that I think of that, then osteomertinib is the, is the answer. Maybe we should just, um, I feel like with one of your answers, maybe we've, we've missed a spot getting to this point when you said um, that about 80% of people uh, responded. And um, Tony, you said with the IPAS study that, you know, that gefitinib was clearly superior to chemotherapy. Maybe, uh, Tony, could you just quantify that for people? I say to people in the clinic, if they have an EGFR mutation, that compared to chemotherapy, the tablet treatments are twice as likely to work, and they're likely to work for at least twice as long as chemo would have with half the side effects. Is, is that fair, or would you say it's even better than that, or not as good? I, I, I think you, you can say that, but now that I think most patients already accepted the fact that you know chemo is really not the choice. So I don't even compare to chemotherapy anymore. I think that conversation probably is gone. Okay, I just say that, hey, you got 70% chance that your tumor is gonna shrink dramatically nice. 20% have some shrinkage, but not as good as I like, but maybe 10% that doesn't do well. So that is a general feeling because that is a, according to Reese's criteria, which is the criteria we say with more than 30% reduction of the total sum, that is the, the quotation that we have. However, there are also 20% of minor response that sometimes we don't tell the patient about minor response, but to the patients physically feeling, they actually feel better. And that is only about 10% of the patient or less that then they don't really respond. So right. I think that give them really the confidence that uh, they go on. And I don't usually talk about the median duration. I just say, hey, life go on. Let's just keep this on as long as we can. I can give the statistic, but who cares? I mean, as long as I can get you back to normal life, and then I would do everything we can to maintain that. And then also, if it didn't work, I'm going to find another solution for you. Okay. So I don't really try to quantify as much uh, unless they really push me to it. Most patients don't really want the quantification. Right. And I guess it's different for everyone. Um... Yep. Bob, let me come back to another point that you made, because uh, you said that you like to use afatinib in uncommon mutations, which made me think that we haven't actually discussed that. Tony, at the beginning, talked about EGFR as being the cell phone with the signal coming in normally, but when there's a mutation, your cell phone is just on all the time. But with uncommon mutations, I guess, could I try and expand the analogy here that, you know, the common mutations might be your iPhone and a Samsung, but... <laughs> but there's also some old Nokia's out there and, and there, there are some other mutations. How would you describe this? Or could you tell us a bit about the range of mutations that exist? Yeah, I think that's, I'm not sure that cell phone out. <laughs> 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 but it's interesting. I'd like to sort of think when I, when I talk to patients and I talk to medical students and we talk about the usual mutations, there's two sort of common mutations. One is called 19 deletion, and the other is kind of a funny word. It's called LA58R. And then we have about 10%, and it might be even higher than that. And we call that uncommon, but even at 10%, that's not that uncommon. So I don't think we'd call them unusual. Um, I would just say they're not that common. <laughs> um, and 
you know, I see, I've got a, I living in Vancouver in the Pacific Rim, um, my practice in EGFR is huge. And so I probably see an uncommon or a not common mutation uh, one or two a month. And in those patients, um, you know, I think the Fatnib is the only drug that has FDA approval. It's got a huge database of over 700 patients um, that have been treated with a Fatnib with an uncommon mutation. And so that is the drug of choice for those patients. Right. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is uncommon is not uncommon. And we just have to make sure that we're measuring all the EGFR mutations out there. Because if you're not, you'll miss them. Okay. Thank you. One allergy I will use is the bandwidth. It's not a cell phone type, it's the bandwidth. You know, the bandwidth or the length. So if you get bandwidth of the 19 and 21, that's the common one. Anything that's non-19 and non-21, those are uncommon one. Okay. So. And I should let you know that um, Lung Cancer Canada always uh, supports and, and provides a lot of uh, data and, and um, advocacy for getting these drugs into the Canadian market. And all of the drugs that Dr. Mlosky mentioned there Jafitinib, Alotinib, Afatinib, Dacomitinib, and Osimertinib, all health, all of them have Health Canada approval to be prescribed in Canada. Depending on which province you're in, the funding uh, might be different. So not all of them are necessarily funded in every province, but most of the ones that your oncologist would want to prescribe are largely available now ac across the country. Tony, may I come back to you for this next question? These drugs don't last forever. And when people have been on uh, jafitinib or afatinib or osimertinib for a while as their first treatment, generally at some point it stops working. What do you do then? What does the science tell you? So cancer cell is cunning and they have to strive for survival. And, and um, Dr. Charles Swanton from United Kingdom had developed a system called the cancer evolution, meaning that how do the cell evolve genetically trying to gain the survival? And there are multiple mechanisms they can do that. And so as a result, there is a spectrum of the mechanism of resistance. The most common one, if you put someone on the first or second generation drug, the T790M mutation located at exon 20, that is the common resistant mutation. And so that is actually the one that occur in 50 to 60% of the 50 of resistancy. And that actually lead to the planned development of the third generation drug osimertinib. So the whole osimertinib drug, when you say one generation from the other, there is had to be a so-called a diffusion point. And T7ICLM is the division point between the second and third generation because they change the molecular shape instead of binding close to the T7IMCO site, they bind to another site called the C7I7S. This is getting very complex, I know, but those are just numbers. But just say, if you, one girlfriend reject you, you try to bond with another girlfriend. And I then, like that and that, that may work. <laughs> <laughs> and so, or you can use boyfriend, I mean, whatever. And so in a way is that, so you bind to a different site so that to get the inhibition to continue. So that's the whole design behind the third generation drug osimertinib is to target the osimertinib, uh, target the T7IM. So, so that is the most common one. And but however, there are a few other ones. I just named the name like the um, MAT amplification, 
HER2 amplification, but let's not go into too much okay. of detail. Let the doctor worry about it. Well, well, I might I might get you to go into a, a little more detail because I think okay. a lot of people listening here who maybe have EGFR lung cancer or someone in their family does, they'll they'll know a lot of this, and maybe um, at some point most of uh, most patients will make it to osimertinib, um, it's otherwise known as Tegriso, and that might be as their first line of treatment, or it might be because they've had the first generation drug and then this T790M mutation has emerged and mm -hmm. they've moved on to osimertinib. But if the osimertinib stops working, mm. what, are the, what are the common things that you're looking for now? Um, I, I have a couple of people in my practice who um, just in the last few weeks, we've discovered CMET amplification after mm. osimertinib. And maybe you could touch on that or other things Sure, no problem. So the two biggest set of data actually come from the oral free study, which is the second line osimertinib study that I've done, and the oral study that Barbara had mentioned as the first line. So at the time of progression, we actually collect the blood sample and we perform something called the NGS, next generation sequencing, meaning that using a genomic sequencing to look at the most common mutation from the blood. From the blood. And both studies have confirmed that that the three most common mutation that you observe at the osimertinib failure is number one, CMAP amplification. I talk about a bit of what it is in a moment, that which occur about 19 to 20%. And another one is called C7I7S mutation. And the third one is called the HER2 amplification. Let's go for the CMAP amplification. Now MAC is actually an escape pathway. So if you push to the corner, then you just have to find another avenue to escape. MAC is that avenue that you can escape. And so when, when you escape, the MAC got amplified into multiple copies so that are more signal to keep the cell growing. So that is the MAC amplification. Why is it important now? It's because we already have some MAC inhibitor in the market, uh, namely uh, the drug called Camatinib, which has been approved for a slightly different indication, but now they are working on the use of this drug for MAC amplified situation when you have a DGFR resistant. So that will be in the near future potential. There's already some study demonstrating the potential use. That's number one. Uh, C7I7S, remember I talked about the one girlfriend and the other girlfriend. C7I7 is the other girlfriend. So you bind to them, but then they reject you again. So they got another mutation with the C7I7. And so as a result, it become resistant. How to deal with that, that will be leading to the birth of the fourth generation. So there are already some compound in development to target the C797. So like the blue 945 and some other is on the way, but not quite in the clinic yet, but they are getting there. So potentially we will have a new fourth generation targeted to C797S. HER2, uh, is again is a mutation that's common in the more com amplification is more common in breast cancer, but we find in lung cancer that if you got EGFR resistancy, then it may also amplify it as well. We don't have an official drug yet, but in the future there is a class of drug called ADC, antibody drug conjugate. So that is actually a antibody which can target HER2, and they kind of link a cytotoxic drug, a chemotherapy into it and zoom it in to the cancer cell. So almost like a magic bullet. And those kind of concept is actually available. And HER2 is actually the drug that is approved for breast cancer 
HER2 uh, positive. And potentially, in lung cancer, they are starting a study as well. So right now, we're at the edge of having solution for the selected patient with the molecular changes after osmotinib. Right. Uh, um, as I stated that, we, we are working on it, but not quite there yet. Right, thank you. And I'll just ask you just for a brief follow-up question, and then I'm going to move to, to Bob for, for some other topics. But my, my question would be, uh, if you're someone with EGFR lung cancer and you're on osimertinib and it does seem to be not working anymore, how would you know if you've got the C797S or the CMET amplification or the HER2 amplification? How would your oncologist set about finding that out? And is indeed, is it easily available to find that kind of thing out? I don't know about Canada's healthcare system, but with money, yes, you can do it. So first of all, uh, you can do plasma-based NGS. There are two ways of doing it for C7IS. You can do a simple one uh, using something called the digital PCR. So basically, digital PCR is a simple PCR based on a plasma protein, plasma uh, DNA that just get multiple copy. The cost is not high, but then you can do only one gene at a time. So you can specifically test for C7S just by plasma, simple test, not too expensive. Or you can go more expensive way to do the NGS of the whole genome profile that would include the C797S. And there are two companies that's approved that in the United States available. One is Garden360, the other is Foundation1 uh, 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 CDX. So those are the two that is available, but I just don't know whether the Canadian system will cover it. In Hong Kong, it doesn't. The patient have to pay out of pocket. The other way is to take a tissue biopsy. Uh, that means uh, what we call a re-biopsy. In the beginning of the lung cancer, you have one biopsy, but now if you go resistant, we can re-biopsy, depending on the site of progression. If it's something in the nymph node, in the neck, it's easy to do. If, but if it's in the lung, it will take a, a slightly more difficult procedure, but it's certainly doable. And then the tissue we got, we send for uh, next generation sequencing or simple EGF mutation testing. Thank you. So, I mean, the answer to what happens in Canada is those tests are sometimes available on research studies at no cost. Um, sometimes um, they they do require a, a private um, paying. So, actually, the the two people I was mentioning with the CMET, uh, one of them had their test through Foundation Medicine, the other one through the other company you mentioned, Garden. Let's just put that topic aside a bit, and because we're in the interest of time, I want to move on to 2020. And Bob, in EGFR lung cancer, there has been some big news this year. What's the latest, the latest change that's going to impact people with EGFR lung cancer? Well, I would say that the, I just want to add, a, can I go back to a comment about your previous question? So the reason why uh, the patient right now, or the patient is paying, even though we, we know that we probably need it, is because when patients fail OSI, we don't always have the drugs for that resistance like C795S. But as we develop more drugs for these resistant mutations, it's gonna become standard of care. We made it standard of care to look for T790 after drugs like Jafitinib and Afatinib. So I think it really is it's gonna be up to us, Paul, you and I, and the rest of our colleagues across Canada to say to our governments, you know, we want to get testing for patients to look for those resistant mutations because we have drugs that we think can help them. Maybe, maybe I can shout out the Faces of Lung Cancer report then, which is, uh, this is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. 
check out the Lung Cancer Canada website and the report we released just uh, about 10 days ago, uh, which really talks a lot about the issue of molecular testing. But anyway, back to 2020, what, what's happening this year? Well, I think the biggest thing is um, in patients who have their cancers taken out, so resected lung cancer, and also have an EGFR mutation, extra treatment, we call that word adjuvant, extra treatment with osimertinib, the third generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor, has shown to be very beneficial. And that's a trial called ADORA. A stands for adjuvant, just like FLORA, F stands for first line. So ADORA was presented and I was in the audience, well, virtually, <laughs> and my jaw dropped. And I thought, you know, that patients were randomized after surgery. Some of them got chemo, some of them didn't, but they were randomized to osteomergen for three years or placebo for three years. And clearly, when you look at the curves, the patients on placebo relapsed quick, quickly over the last couple of years. And the people with osteomritinib have not relapsed as much. In fact, it's probably, you know, 10 to 1. So uh, 10 patients on placebo were relapsing for one on osteomritinib. Right. And more sort of importantly for the patient, um, many of those relapses were in brain. And that's all I needed to say, I'll go to Health Canada and speak about this. I'll go to Peak Coder. Um, I want this for my patients. And if I had EGFR mutated lung cancer that was resected, I'd want it for myself. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm now prescribing it in that setting if I can get it. It's not gone through the regulatory processes yet because the data is so new. Yeah. May, I, may I challenge on the question is that, would you want to wait for over survival benefit with the Kennedy Canadian government ask for over survival benefit before they approve it? I think with the brain metastases, the answer is no. You know, I think that, um, well, now crossover is an amendment to the trial, so we may not ever get overall survival. I'm, the overall I'm, survival I'm may gonna, not cover four or five years. I'm just going to interject um, to maybe just give some uh, meat on the bones of that question, Tony. Um, we don't have all the data yet, I think, is, is what is, is the point for the study. We've got the earliest data which showed that people with EGFR lung cancer that had had surgery were 80% less likely to have a recurrence than if, if they got the osimertinib than if they were on the placebo. 80% reduction in the risk of a recurrence. But that doesn't mean that they may not recur later anyway and then could kind of catch up with treatment from osimertinib at a later date. So the question that Tony's getting at is, is it really improving your cure, your chance of being cured, or is having the osimertinib after surgery merely delaying the time that you might have a recurrence anyway? Personally, Tony, I believe it's improving the cure rate, but I know not everybody is, is, is yet convinced by that. But. What do you think? Well, actually, that maybe I share my thought. I actually support Barbara's thought, but then uh, the OS data is always challenging because it takes a long time to come out. So I always give this allergy is that, all right, you don't give it, you don't talk about it, but what if three years later, there's over survival benefit? Can you come back to tell your patient, sorry, I missed telling you that. So I think at this moment, we're obligated at least to share the data with the patient and try to make it available as an option. Uh, although we don't have observable benefit, but there is a reasonable chance that they may be positive. And when we can go back 
to tell the patient sorry. You know, so that's the one reason why I think that we should move forward at this stage. Right. That's kind of an analogy of going shopping. You <laughs> that you know well. <laughs> <laughs> you might go to the, you guys talked about cell phones and girlfriends. I'm going to bring it back to shopping. <laughs> but, um, okay, well, on the shopping topic, on the shopping topic, Bob, um, if you go into the department store and you're shopping for, your EGFR drug in, in when you go in the front door and turn left and there's your EGFR drugs and you're picking osimertinib and gefitinib and all of these great drugs that we've been hearing about. But over there on the right, if you walk through the door, there's another sales hall labeled immunotherapy. So a common question that we receive uh, in preparation for this panel, but also probably in the clinic as, as well, a lot of EGFR patients want to know, well, I hear a lot about immunotherapy. Will that work for me? So, Bob, does immunotherapy work in EGFR lung cancer, or is it for a different group of lung cancer patients? Yeah, I sort of, when I explain it to patients, you know, I say, you know, immunotherapy works in cancers like melanoma, where you get all these carcinogens from the sun. It works in patients, not always, but in patients who were heavy smokers, they have all these carcinogens from the nicotine and the cigarettes. But in EGFR, they only have one mutation. And so the chance of it working is much less. It's not zero, because I have to say, um, I've had to eat my words. I just have a patient who's responding beautifully on it. And she's a non-smoker with EGFR. So it's not zero. But really, you know, you should try every EGFR TKI you have, you should try chemotherapy, uh, and then immunotherapy. That's my practice anyways. Yeah, uh, to support that, uh, there is actually a question um, from the chat box. They're asking what are the cold cell and hot cell in EGFR lung cancer and asking us to elaborate. I think this would be a good moment. So I don't think Alex Shaw and Jason Gaynor are talking about cold cell and hot cell of the, cancer, of the lung cancer cell, but rather talking about the immune environment. So for the immunotherapy to work, you need to have something called a microenvironment for the T cell to go in and infiltrate and kill the cell. However, there are cancer, as Barbara has said, without too much antigen. So that immune cell not too interested. So it becomes something called a cold environment. So not too inflammation going on. As compared on some cancer that is have a hot environment when they have a lot of antigen. So when Dr. Saul and Dr. Gaynor talk about the cold cell, not cell, they are actually referred to immune inflamed environment and most of the EGFL parts of lung cancer are more likely to be in the cold environment. So even though there's a pd one expression, the microenvironment is not the most suitable for the T-cell to be infiltrated. And so that's a result. So far, we've seen the response rate have been around 10%, 15% type of thing. Okay. So immunotherapy, not so good in this group, particularly when you said earlier that the response rates to the EGFR drugs are 70, 80, 90%. So I, th I think we're probably all in agreement that immunotherapy is is an option, but it's 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 nowhere near the f the, the front of the line for the, for the single, best option. Single checkpoint. I think like that world's changing so quickly too, and you know it'd be interesting in the next few years we're going to see patients with EGFR where they're trying to change that microenvironment, and right. that that's where immunotherapy then may work. So that world's really changing quickly, but as of today you know, with our 
checkpoint, what we call checkpoint inhibitors. Um, I, the, you know, really, I think Dr. Mock also said and made it clear that your marker for responding to those drugs is called PDL1, and it's not reliable in patients with EGFR. Great. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go to the Q&A session. Uh, last year, I, um, I'm not sure if it was a if it was an honor or not. I, I, I debated at a at a conference with Dr. Francis Shepard, who was my mentor, and uh, Dr. Shepard is um, world-renowned lung oncologist and and led many international studies from Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And she asked me to do the debate at Princess Margaret. Like so, you know, she was on home turf. And <laughs> anyway, the question that we discussed was with EGFR drugs, is it is it a good idea to have the osimertinib or the gefitinib, but try and add something to it so you can really give a sort of double whammy approach? Should you should you be giving immunotherapy as well? even if immunotherapy on its own is not great? Or should you be giving chemotherapy together with uh, an EGFR drug? Or could you be giving some of these drugs called anti-angiogenesis drugs that sort of starve the, the blood vessel supply? So, kind of uh, Paul, first of all, uh, even I call Francis to be mama lung. So don't argue <laughs> with your mother. <laughs> anyway, to, to your I question. I not watching. <laughs> <laughs> so, Com combine chemo with EGF-TKI and combine the anti-angiogenic drug with the TKI have been studied together with the first generation drug. And they have been demonstrating some improvement on the progression-free survival, as you have explained. However, today there's not too much strong data to suggest that it improved the over-survival because in a way is that the combined treatment can be given subsequently. So at this moment, we don't have tremendous data to support on the use, especially their potential toxicity. And also with the chemotherapy or the anti-angiogenic drug, you need to go to hospital every three weeks. And then like some of our patients go on with the target therapy for a long, long time. So you're asking the patient to commit themselves to come to hospital every three weeks for a long, long time. So whether that's really worth their while, for a slight improvement in the progression-free survival is debatable. Okay. As for osimertinib, I don't think it should be combined with uh, immotherapy because there's one report just indicating there's a very high incident of something called interstitial pneumonia, which is a very severe form of immune-related pneumonia that can be fatal. So right now, no one will, will actually dare to use osimertinib and a pdl one agent simultaneously at this okay. moment. Thank you. So just to sum that one up then, adding another drug right now adds side effects and we don't know that it adds much else. I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's it. <laughs> uh, now, Christina, um, welcome back to the to the screen. Christina said, as I mentioned earlier, is our, our programs manager at Lung Cancer Canada. Uh, maybe I could just, before I pass it to you, Christina, thank you and Julie and Iwo and Darcy and Michelle and Shem and the, the staff at Lung Cancer Canada for facilitating and, and putting this on tonight. So thank you for that. And I'll pass it over to you to facilitate the, the Q&A.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much to our panelists and thank you very much to all our listeners from across the country and I actually see some international friends as well. Um, we are just going, we're going to go, I'm going to direct my questions to each of you and for all of those that have answered my answered put in questions in the chat box or actually sent them in earlier. There were so many questions. We are not going to be able to get through them all tonight, but we will try to perhaps ask the uh, panelists to answer them later, and then we will post them up on lungcancercanada.ca. There are a few of you that have asked personal medical questions, and unfortunately, we cannot answer your, on your personal situation, but we will try to keep them to more of a general nature. So the first question I am going to direct to uh, Dr. Miloski out in Vancouver and say, and uh, there's been a number of que questions on, is there any way to use diet and exercise or any way to prevent resistance? Well, unfortunately the short answer is no. Um, I don't think we have any studies to show that diet can change cancer once it's arrived. Exercise, there is some data that's evolving. Some of it's in colorectal, some of it's in breast to show that Weight-bearing exercises can maybe even modulate your immune system. Uh, but I think that diet and exercise do something else. And I think that they make the overall person feel better. They give um, the mind a certain meditative uh, feeling. They make uh, patients feel positive about their bodies and themselves. So I would suggest exercise and diet are important, but unfortunately I'm not sure if they can actually change the cancer. So it may be contributing to your overall well-being. Exactly. So I'm going to go overseas now and go to Dr. Mock and ask, many of our patients are, are asking about um, complexities and, com and what if you are both pdl one and EGFR positive, what do you treat first? Right. So first of all, uh, as I mentioned earlier, pdl one positivity, which means over 50%, is not necessarily the best predictor of response to immunotherapy in patients with DGM mutation positive. There's one small study done in UCRA is that they have 12 patients that were actually both DGM mutation positive and PDL1 positive over 50%. When given the drug immunotherapy, pembrolizumab, the response rate is one out of the 12 patients. So actually, it's not that impressive. Secondarily, we are talking about a response rate of over 70% with the TKI. So I would certainly not use a PDL1 as a first-line therapy, you know, despite of the positive in the PDL1 status. Perfect. Now, there's also a question uh, related to, and because all of us are very, very young here, they're asking if, if you are been diagnosed with EGFR lung cancer and you're younger versus you're older, is there any difference in treatment approach? Shall we turn it over to Dr. Miloski? Well, again, you know, I think people who know me still think that I uh, do think that when I talk to patients, I talk to them about sequencing. I talk to them about maybe an advantage of starting with a fatinib, finding that T790, moving to osteomodinib. I don't have that conversation with older patients, uh, mostly because I'm not sure if they're going to get another line of therapy. And so I think that, you know, I, I try to make decisions with patients. I try to, you know, talk to them about the data and I try not to bias, maybe, you know, my own viewpoint. I, I think that, you know, we live in a world now that, you know, patients come into my office and they've got the recent New England Journal paper article with them. So, you know, I think patients are knowledgeable, um, webcasts like this, uh, the internet, 
I think those are actually very positive and I'm happy to discuss it with them. So I do think age does play into a role. I can give a 90 year old osteomertinib, I can't give that same patient a fat pill. Could, could I ask a little follow-up question then, Barb, about that? You, you, you'll give osmertinib to a 90-year-old, but not a fatinib. Why, why is that? What, what are the differences in, in side effects between these different yeah, drugs? So, um, is is extremely easy. And I say that, but every so often I've got a patient who, who doesn't like it and has diarrhea. So I say it's easy, and the majority of patients, it's a really easy drug. A fatinib has its share of toxicity. It can cause diarrhea, rash, perinicia, certain nail changes. And so, you know, there it is it is more toxic to the patient than osteomertinib. And so in older patients that many of my patients are Asian and uh, the communication is not always optimal. And so osteomertinib is an easier drug for them. That's when you pick up the phone and you call Dr. Mock in Hong Kong. <laughs> many of my patients do, by the way. There's many of my patients' phones or somehow email or see Dr. Mock. So we share many patients. Kind of hey, we're just one ocean apart, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Mock, there's um there's some questions that are coming in and we actually have a lot of uh listeners here and, and, and uh, attendees here that are not EGFR positive, but either have rather have other mutations. And they're asking about ALK and ROS. Are they like EGFR and they're not related to smoking as well? Right. So ALK and ROS are not related to smoking similarly. However, the mutation type is quite different. Uh, it's not exactly a mutation per se. It is more something like a translocation. However, stay tuned for December. I'm sure that you have a program on ALK and we'll stop, talk about ALK in detail. But I can just promise you there are great work and great study that have been done on this arena. And thank you for doing our job in advertising for our next webinar. I, I'm, I'm good at those kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come back to Canada because there are a couple of uh, questions related to Canada. Perhaps Dr. Wheatley Price and Dr. Miloski can either one of you can answer this question as that what do you, what are the next drugs that may be available in Canada that you think that KL Canada may be looking at? Oh. <laughs> well, um, so for, for EGFR lung cancer, which is, you know, where, what we're talking about tonight, really all of the drugs that we've talked about tonight um, are approved in Canada. And I, I think sometimes we, we complain that, you know, we don't have access to everything. And certainly at Lung Cancer Canada, we're continually knocking down the doors of provincial governments, federal governments, regulatory agencies to get access to drugs as soon as possible. But ultimately, we do quite well. So gefitinib, alotinib, afatinib, dacomitinib, and osimertinib are all approved in Canada and most, uh, mostly available and funded um, across the country. The other drugs, the newer drugs, um, so uh, Dr. Mark mentioned uh, capmatinib as one um, potential drug for CMET, um, which is one of these resistance mechanisms. Um, and some of the other drugs targeting C797S, the fourth generation inhibitors he mentioned, um, some of these drug antibody conjugates, antibody drug conjugates, those are all still in clinical trial in this situation. So they're not approved and, and they wouldn't be approved in any jurisdiction, uh, be it the US, uh, Europe or Asia or here. 
uh, until they've gone through those clinical trials. So I think right now we have access to all the approved drugs. And another, I think, good thing about Canada is we do attract a lot of clinical trials. And so if you're in the situation where you need a CMET drug, it may not be available in your center where you're being treated, but it's quite possible that there will be another cancer center within reach where you could look to enroll on a clinical trial. So uh, we have three minutes left and um, in the interest of time, I am going to ask one final question of and uh, go around to the panelists here. What is your vision and of treating EGFR lung cancer in the next five years? How do you see that uh, being treated? And let's start uh, across the ocean in Hong Kong. Um, so we had take a long journey of the three generation of the drug. So the next step to, to ask the question is that how can we maximize the duration of treatment or to manipulate it with all these different drugs we have to maximize the outcome for the patient? So one concept that we can engage in is something called the mineral residual disease, meaning that you start on a TKI, you want to see whether you're doing well before the tumor progress. So for that, we can actually use the plasma DNA to monitor the progress of the situation. So there have been data to show that if you take the, TK, the, the drug and then after a few weeks or months that you still got EGF mutation in your blood, then you're not doing well. The outcome will actually be less than what you expected. So maybe you can do something extra to those patients. So I think the so-called the uh, um, minimum residual disease or monitoring of the EGF valve in the plasma DNA probably may come into the clinical practice in the near future. So I'm going to go across the ocean and um, Dr. Molosky. Oh, I think, you know, I think if we start treating adjuvant treatment and we start finding patients at surgery who are EGFR positive and one, well, they won't come to the metastatic stage. I believe that it's going to cure patients. I think that we're making family doctors aware uh, they're, they're starting to think about lung cancer in patients who have symptoms at a young age, even if they don't smoke. And so I think that education is actually paid off. I think all of them have heard of this mutation called EGFR. So I hope that I see less patients in the future. I hope we cure more patients in the future. And I hope in those patients that are on EGFR inhibitors that they continue to live a longer life with high quality of life. And the word cure is what all patients want to hear. Um, Dr. Waitley Price, over to you. Yes, what they said. Um, <laughs> but basically, I think, you know, you're right. Firstly, we want to improve the cure rates, which means catching cancer early. And so a little diversion from EGFR positive lung cancer, but we really would like to see lung cancer screening being available across the country to detect lung cancers early. Not all of those are likely to be EGFR positive, but some of them will be. Um, and then we can improve the cure rates with, with drugs like osimertinib. And maybe um, just, to, just to close off that, there's, I'll tell you a story about a patient uh, that I've been seeing for a number of years. Um, he's well known to the Lung Cancer Canada community and has in, even come to parliament with me on occasion. And he was diagnosed uh, quite some time ago um, before osimertinib was available and he, was on gefitinib and it lasted long enough for him to keep him well and healthy. So when the time came that he did need to change, osimertinib was available. And so he was then being able to be on osimertinib 
And that has worked long enough to keep him well and healthy for long enough that now when he needs a change, we've identified the CMET and he's gonna be able to go on a research study for that. And so these drugs are now helping people to sort of be, be well enough for long enough that then the science can keep up with them and we can move on to the next stage. So I would like to see that continue and with some of the science that uh, Dr. Mox outlined just there. And so on that note of hope, I'd like to thank the panelists and, and also um, tell everyone that we are just in the middle of our Lung Cancer Awareness Month this, this right now. Um, throughout this entire month, we have an, um, other events and other things that are ongoing that we will hope that you will join us. One, we have a t-shirt contest. You guys have been asking us for a t-shirt contest for many, many years. And um, our t-shirt design contest is now open and, and submissions ask, uh, can be, are open until November the 23rd, at which time we'll open it up nationwide and ask you guys to vote for your t-shirt and the uh, winner will be announced at the evening of hope so i encourage all you artists to join that contest the next thing the other thing that we have ongoing is what we call the hope army now for all of you listeners out there if you believe that lung cancer patients deserve a voice if you believe that lung cancer patients deserve equity and don't deserve to be asked the wrong question then please you are a hope army recruit Join Hope Army and help us choose your own mission. We will ask you to help us with uh, increasing lung cancer awareness and sharing the voices of those living with lung cancer. For those that want to go to parliament and also and make your uh, awareness, spread your awareness amongst your elected officials, there, there's we have tools to help you do that too. So visit, uh, join Hope Army, increase the voices of those living with lung cancer. And for those that do, we will send you this mask and, uh, and you can put it and wear it and proudly state that you are a Hope Army recruit. My name is Parisa Sapiri. My mother is a five-year stage four lung cancer survivor. And to me, hope is the voice that reminds you that life is full of so many great experiences and that there are many more to come, even if right now it's a little bit difficult to see that. Thank you. And I turn it over to Dr. Wheatley Price for some final words. Yeah, thank you all for joining. Thank you to Tony and Bob for really that, that wonderful expert knowledge that you've shared with us. And we're really thrilled that on this inaugural What's New in Lung Cancer series, we've had such a you know, panel. So thank you both very much. Our next What's New in Lung Cancer webinar is on December the 3rd with Dr. Kamage and Dr. Lale. That's going to be about ALK lung cancer. And you can get details and register on the lungcancercanada.ca website. Um, but thank you much. Thank you very much, everybody. Tony, for getting up early uh, in Hong Kong. You can now go and have breakfast. And uh, I'll go and have dinner. Thank you. Thank all. you so much. Send me the t-shirt. Size small, please. <laughs> Will do. Hey, good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.